Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. As we just read, we'll be in verses 1 through 14. And as you turn there, I want to tell a story that a few of you have heard before. It's a story from uh, college. I went to uh, Texas A&M University. Thank you. And, uh, and so while I was a student there, I was about 20 or so. And uh, while I was a student, I was living in, uh, in Bryan, which is right next to College Station. And I was living in a three-bedroom apartment with only one other guy. Not because we uh, wanted to live the high life or something and needed an extra bedroom, but because we had a buddy who was supposed to move in with us. And uh, literally the day that we were moving in, he had already signed the lease and all that. He just, he didn't even call us. We called him and said, hey, where are you? And he said, oh man, I decided I'm not going to move in. And uh, so thanks a lot, Lee. And, uh, and so uh, we were stuck with this extra bedroom. Thankfully, about six months later, we had another buddy whose lease was up, and so he needed a place to stay, and, uh, and so he moved in, and he brought with him this sweet stereo system. It had a, a, a six-disc CD changer. This was the 90s, and uh, that's like top-of-the-line technology back then, and, uh, and so we even hooked the speakers up to the TV, and that night, we watched Braveheart with the bass thumping as loud as possible. Then I went to sleep. I got up the next morning, I ran some errands, and when I got home, there was a, a police officer who was sitting on our porch. Not just any police officer, but our neighbor. And our neighbor was a cop who was notorious for hating college kids. Now, that's a huge problem when you work in Bryan College Station, where the population is almost all college students. So this guy, let's call him Shane, because that was his name, and... Uh, <laughs> And so yeah, he asked, uh, uh, he didn't say good morning or anything, he just asked, hey, were you home last night? And I say that I was, uh, but I guess I should have pleaded the fifth. Uh, this will be the first of many times that I'll realize I should have something, uh, done something differently because his response to I was home at night was that he hands me a ticket for disorderly conduct because, quote, the music was too uh, loud. Now, I was pre-law at, uh, at the time, so I decided to fight this ticket because I was innocent, all right? The music hadn't been too loud. He, t uh, he said it was going to like 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. or something like that. I know for a fact that it was turned off uh, by 10 because that's when we went to bed. And, uh, and so I decided to fight this ticket for disorderly conduct because I could probably count on one hand the number of times, the number of nights in college that I was actually orderly, and that was one of them. And, uh, and so I decided to, uh, to fight it. And, uh, and so I watched A Few Good Men, I watched A Time to Kill, and I was ready. And, uh, and so that's mistake number two, right? I had the truth, and I had the law on my side. How could I lose? Well, I'll tell you how I could lose, because apparently there's a fairly substantial difference between practicing law and just watching Matlock or something. And, uh, and so, so I actually go to trial, I decide to represent myself, and in the trial, immediately, when we're, when we're just beginning, the prosecutor stands up and he says, your honor, I'd like to invoke the rule. And I have no idea what that means, until the bailiff comes over and he tells my two roommates who were there as my witnesses to leave the courtroom. So it leaves me and the judge, and the police officer, Shane, and the prosecutor, and a stenographer, the little person who takes the notes, all right? I didn't even know that was a thing that you could do, right? The prosecutor says, I'd like to invoke the rule, and the bailiff makes all of my friends uh, leave uh, the room. I like to think that it's kind of like the game of jinx, 
Whoever just says it first, they win. So if I would have said I'd like to evoke the rule, then like the judge has to leave and the prosecutor and all that, just me and my buddies and the stenographer or something like that. But that's, uh, that, that's uh, what happened. And so I now realize very quickly that I don't really know the law, which is mistake number uh, three. But I think I, at least I still have the truth uh, until I question Officer Shane and he actually lies on, uh, on the stand. All right, he lies about, uh, yeah, the music was still going at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. or whatever it was. So I object. I stand up and I object because I see this in movies and, the, and the, uh, the judge says, on what grounds? And I say, I kid you not, I say, on the grounds that he's lying. <laughs> the judge says, overruled. And thus ended my illustrious <laughs> career as a lawyer. And that's why you have me as your pastor, right? <laughs> I tell you that story for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, in case any of you run a background check and you see that I've been uh, convicted of disorderly conduct, because I was convicted. Uh, second, because this story serves as a bit of an illustration of our text this morning, right? In chapter eight, we talked about the question of food sacrificed to idols. And Paul said, idols are nothing. Those gods aren't gods, so meat that's been sacrificed to idols aren't truly polluted. You're free to eat it. You can eat it. But he also said, occasionally, there are times when you shouldn't eat it. Sometimes you should exercise your rights. I probably should have exercised my right to be silent. But other times you should lay down that right. I should have laid down my right to represent myself as my own attorney. Sometimes the right to do something doesn't mean that it's actually right to do it. And that's what our text is about this week. And then we'll continue that into uh, the next couple of weeks. So let's pray and then we'll uh, dive in together. I ask you first just to pray for uh, yourself. Maybe you come in and, and you've had a really hard week. Maybe you're struggling with uh, sin. Maybe you had a fight with your spouse or your kids on the way here. Maybe you're anxious, whatever it might be. Next, will you pray for those around you, not knowing all of their circumstances? Would you ask the Lord to give us collectively a, a heart to uh, heed and to hear his word this morning and the humility to apply it to our lives. And then lastly, would you pray for me for uh, more than anything, just to be faithful to, uh, to God's word. So Father, we love you because you have loved us and so we're grateful for the grace that you've given to us in your son, we pray that he would be glorified among us this morning as we consider your word and pray that you would, by your spirit, help us to, uh, to see it and to understand it and to uh, apply it, that we would, uh, we, we would behold the glory of your word and, uh, and revel in it. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name, amen. Let's look at verses one and two. We'll start there because that's the beginning. All right, 1 Corinthians 9, one through two. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now, let me repeat the context. In order to understand any of a book, you need to understand what's going on around it. And so uh, in the immediate context, this is the very beginning of chapter nine, so we need to understand what's happening in chapter eight. And in chapter eight, he was asking this question, what do you do about food sacrifice to idols? 
All right, obviously you shouldn't sacrifice food to idols, but what happens if you just happen to buy some meat from the meat market and uh, you don't know if it's sacrificed or not? Or what happens if you go over to a friend's house and they serve you meat and you're wondering, was this actually sacrificed to idols or something like that? And so this was the question that the Corinthians were asking and that we've looked at in chapter eight. And there are two groups in Corinth there that are represented. There are those who say, you should never eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol because idols are bad and that meat is kind of demon meat. It's been polluted, it's been tainted. The other side of the argument would say demons are nothing. We're so free, we can eat whatever meat we want. What's interesting is that Paul actually agrees with this second group in a sense. He says, yes, demons are nothing. That meat isn't actually polluted. You're free to eat it. But then he also says that there are times where you shouldn't eat it. Paul ended chapter eight with this. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. In other words, he's willing to surrender his dietary rights, if you will, for the sake of love, for the sake of the gospel. And that's gonna continue in chapter nine. In fact, that's what chapter nine is going to be uh, about. We'll talk about half of it today. We'll talk about the other half next week. And then there's a, a third half that we'll talk about two weeks after that. I don't know how math works, all right? Uh, so today's text is gonna open with these four rhetorical questions. And these, these questions are gonna form kind of a sustained uh, defense of the idea of Paul having these apostolic rights, right? Most of our text this morning is just Paul arguing for the fact that he has certain rights, that he has the right to do certain things. He begins by saying, am I not free? Free to do what? Free from food laws, freed from those kinds uh, of things in the immediate context. And then he says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? By the way, that's why we don't talk about apostles today. The word apostle just refers to a representative, uh, a representative of another. But in the New Testament, most often the word apostle doesn't just refer to one who is sent by another, but refers to an official designated uh, officer in the church, all right? It's, it's someone, uh, it typically refers to, to those who uh, represent the 12 disciples minus Judas, who was replaced by a guy named Matthias. And then you have guys like uh, Paul and James and a few others. How many apostles were there, we don't really know, somewhere between 14 and 20. So those are the, the, the apostles. And to be included in that group, you generally had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. That's one of the requirements according to the book of Acts. And you also had to have been personally commissioned by Jesus himself, all right? So you have to actually seen Christ in his resurrected body. And then you also have to have uh, been commissioned by Jesus himself. That's what it means to be an apostle. You're a representative. So that's why there are no apostles today in the, in the New Testament sense of the word. There are missionaries. They're church planners. They kind of do some apostolic stuff in that sense, but they're not apostles in the way that the uh, New Testament uses that word to refer to this authoritative uh, office. And so he writes, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen uh, our Lord? Then he writes, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. What's that mean? What's he doing here? Well, his point is that the Corinthians of all people should not doubt the fact that he is an apostle. Of all the people in the world, the Corinthians should be absolutely convinced that he is an apostle. Why? Because he's the one who planted the church. He's the one who labored there for 18 months. If he's not an apostle, then in a sense, 
they indict themselves, all right? You might question whether or not I'm actually a father. You know who knows that I'm a father? My daughter, my son, all right? That's kind of the idea there. And this is all just opening argument. This is his first line uh, of defense. He's kind of listing out his qualifications, not because those qualifications are in doubt. In fact, it's the exact opposite. He's assuming that the Corinthians know, yes, you are an apostle. Yes, you have seen the Lord. Yes, you do, you are free, and, uh, and so forth. And so he is, uh, he, he, not because those qualifications are in doubt, but rather because he's trying to make this argument that these qualifications are what establish his rights. The fact that he's an apostle, therefore gives him apostolic rights. And so speaking of rights, let's look at the next few verses. Three through seven. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its food? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So now, in addition to the other rhetorical questions, we now have six more rhetorical questions. And the first three are going to concern his rights, And then the next three are going to concern kind of this illustration to exemplify the point that he's making. But he begins with this right to eat and drink. And that serves obviously as a context uh, or as a link to the immediate context of food sacrificed to idols. And it also serves to establish the sort of general expectations of ministers of the gospel that they'll be shown hospitality. All right, Jesus said to those whom he sent out during his earthly ministry in Luke 10, 7 through 8, He told them, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Keep that passage in mind. We're actually going to come back to that uh, later. But the idea here is that those who were sent out for the sake of the gospel should have a reasonable expectation that their needs would be met by those who were beneficiaries of their ministry. And that includes things like food and drink, room and board, uh, and those kinds of things. Then he mentions this next right. He says, do I not have the right to bring along a wife? Now, we already know from chapter 7 that Paul has actually foregone that right. He has willingly embraced singleness for the sake of mission, but the fact that he has relinquished that right doesn't mean that that right doesn't exist. He has the right even if he chooses uh, to lay it down. Now, this isn't an argument for the right to marry. That's not Paul's point here. He's already established in chapter 7 that marriage is a good gift This is about the right to bring a a wife along with you in your ministry as an apostle. In other words, she also needs to eat and drink, right? Uh, And that's a right. I've I've got a number of missionary buddies, right? So let's imagine that my buddy who uh, serves as a a church planner in Tokyo, imagine that he's back in the States and uh, he wants to hang out. So I invite him over to my house and I said, hey man, come and let's have dinner but your wife's going to have to stay outside, right? We're not going to give her food and drink because she's not actually a missionary. She's not a church planner like you are, all right? That's crazy, and that's Paul's point here, right? If, if you are a, an apostle and you're taking along your wife, does she not have the right to eat and drink uh, as well? Uh, so that's another right. By the way, notice in here the mention of the brothers of the Lord and also Cephas, Cephas is the Hebrew name for, uh, for Peter, right? And, uh, and so it mentions here uh, uh, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. This is not the main point, but it's a, a pretty big dagger in Roman Catholic dogma, which says that Mary was a perpetual virgin, right? In other words, she had no other kids, 
When in reality, in the Bible, Jesus had at least a few brothers and maybe a few sisters. Among those brothers were guys like James and Jude who wrote books of the Bible. While we're at it, notice also that Peter was married, right? So the whole priest can't marry uh, Roman Catholic thing takes a pretty big hit when the first pope, according to them, was himself married. That's not the point. It's just fun to take an occasional jab at bad tradition. (laughs) Roman Catholicism is full of bad tradition there. So... Paul has now made the following argument, all right? He's made the following argument. It consists of these two propositions, right? Number one, he's an apostle. Nobody in Corinth is doubting that. Number two, he has uh, certain rights. He has the right as an apostle to expect provision from those to whom he ministers. Now, in order to really illustrate that right, to really solidify it, he gives these three analogies. He gives the analogy of a soldier and a farmer and a shepherd, all right? Now, why does he choose these? Does he just randomly look around and sees a soldier and a farmer and a shepherd and he just chooses those things? No, he's actually being very strategic. All of these images are images that are used in the Old Testament to refer to the people of God, to refer to uh, Israel. Israel is described as uh, uh, the Lord's host or the Lord's army. Israel is described as a field that needs to be cultivated by farmers. Israel is described as a flock that needs faithful uh, shepherds and so forth. So these aren't just random examples. They're examples that are actually laden with, uh, with imagery that the, the readers would have been familiar with. Now, before we move on, I want you to notice the prevalence of the word right. Right. You see it here in uh, verses 4, 5, and 6. We'll see it again in 12 and, uh, and 18. And as mentioned before, this ties back to the immediate context, right? Why is he talking about rights? Because that's the immediate context. Look back at chapter 8, verse 9. Paul writes, but take care that this right of yours, same word, uh, even in Greek, this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Do you have a right to eat food sacrificed to idols? Paul has already said, yes, absolutely, you have that right. But then he says, take care that that right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. I mention that because Paul's primary purpose here, his underlying goal is not to prove that he has certain rights. That's not actually his goal. It isn't really even to defend his practice of renouncing his rights. What is Paul's purpose here? Paul's purpose here in chapter 9 is to give the Corinthians an example. To give the, uh, the Corinthians an example, and that example is himself. As he is going to lay aside his rights, so the Corinthians should be willing to lay aside their rights. That's Paul's brilliant solution to the question of food offered to idols. Are you free to eat it? Yes, absolutely. Do you have the right to eat it? Yes, absolutely. Does that mean that it's always the most loving and wise thing to do? And his answer is no. In fact, there are times where you should lay down that right. We'll see that not only in chapter 9, but we'll also see that in chapter 10. So what Paul is doing here is laying this groundwork for a command that we're going to see in the beginning of chapter 11. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, 1. This is kind of a summation of what he's doing in uh, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's his hope, that's his goal, that's his purpose. You lay down your rights as I lay down my rights, all right? We'll come back to that. Let's look at verses eight through 10. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? 
For it is written in the law of God, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So to this point, Paul's established that he is an apostle and, uh, and that that role as an apostle entitles him to certain rights, certain privileges, particularly the right to be supported by those to whom he ministers. And then as proof of that argument, he appeals to the precedent of other apostles, Cephas, the brothers of the Lord, and so forth. He also appeals to common sense by using these examples of soldiers and farmers and uh, shepherds. But that's not all he does. He goes beyond that and he says, but my argument doesn't just simply rest on these human examples or common sense or human authority. In addition to all of those, he says, look at the law. Look at the Mosaic law. Now, we're no longer under the Mosaic law. We talked about that a little bit in, uh, in uh, theological equipping this morning. In the sense of we're no longer under its jurisdiction, but that doesn't mean that the law is therefore irrelevant for us. In fact, we learn quite a bit about the will and the heart of God in, uh, by reading the Mosaic law. For example, we may not be under the law of the tithe. You don't necessarily have to give 10%. Maybe for you, it's only 5%. Maybe for you, it's 95%, depending on what you make. You're no longer under the law of the tithe, which means just a tenth. Uh, but we certainly see in the New Testament that there's still this abiding principle that uh, we should be generous and uh, hospitable and charitable and so forth. And so you can read about that by reading about the tithe. The tithe is no longer commanded, but giving to others. Support of kingdom work is still commanded. Or we may not be under the law of the Sabbath. We talked about this also in theological equipping. But we learn something of the will of God for us to rest. We're no longer commanded to rest just on the seventh day of the week in particular, but we're still expected to rest nonetheless. So Paul is going to appeal to the, to the law here to support his point. And notice how this relates to what was just said. It isn't the literal meaning of the law that he's going to apply here, it's the broader principle that he's gonna bring out, all right? Look at that passage, Deuteronomy 25, four. That's what Paul is quoting here. Deuteronomy 25, four says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Now you might think, well, that's great, Paul, but what does that, gotta, uh, what does that have to do with you, all right? Nobody was even talking about oxen, and all of a sudden you've brought up oxen. And Paul's point is, this isn't just about oxen. What's that mean? Well, there are three different ways that you can look back and understand Deuteronomy 25, all right? You could say Deuteronomy 25 is only about oxen, all right? You could also say it's not at all about oxen, or you could say, yes, this is about oxen, but it's about more than just oxen. That is literally the most I've ever said the word oxen in one sentence, all right? So the first way, the first way that you can look at Deuteronomy 25, and I would say you can't do this, but some might do this, is the, that you just kind of ignore what 1 Corinthians says here. You read Deuteronomy 25 and you think, this is just about oxen. That's all it's about, right? This is just saying, don't muzzle an ox. This has nothing to do with the horse that you ride on. Doesn't mean you have to give it water or anything. This has nothing to do with the, you know, the reindeers that pull your sleigh. This has nothing to do with the dogs that protect your house. This is just about oxen and especially not about men and women who are working. That's the first way that you could read this. What Paul does here in 1 Corinthians shows you can't actually do that. It blows that out of the water. So what some people do is they kind of swing the pendulum all the way to the other side and they say that Deuteronomy 25 was never about oxen. 
It was really only and always about people. That was kind of uh, Martin Luther's position. He said, you know how I know that Deuteronomy is not uh, written for oxen? Because oxen can't read. All right, that was his uh, argument, which is a really Luther uh, thing to say. Unfortunately, like a lot of what Luther wrote, it's a bit of an exaggeration. I think rather than just kind of an either or, this is only about oxen, this is not at all about oxen, I think this passage represents kind of this both and. I think Paul's point here is that Deuteronomy 25 uh, is not only about oxen or only about people, it's actually about both. It's this, this general principle of God's concern for living things whether man or beast. If something is working for you, you should take care of it. I think that's his point here. I think what Paul is doing is what in Hebrew is called kal wahomer, all right? Which means the light and the heavy. It's related to to what in Latin, you may have heard this uh, phrase, it's a little bit more familiar to us, the a fortiori argument, which means to the stronger. Uh, If you recall, we've talked about a fortiori uh, arguments quite a bit. It's that when you use the fact that you can do something Uh, more difficult to prove that you can do the easier thing. For example, if you can run three miles, then you can run one mile. Or if you can lift 100 pounds, you can lift 50. Or if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball or something like that. So the Hebrew idea of kal wahomer is uh, is really similar, but it kind of argues, it makes the same point, but it argues in the opposite direction. Rather than from the greater to the lesser, it kind of reverses it. It argues from the light to the heavy, that's what it means in, uh, in Hebrew. If something is true of a smaller thing, it's true of the larger as well. For example, if I can't pick up 1,000 pounds, then I definitely can't pick up 10,000 pounds. Or if $1 is valuable, then surely $1 million is even more valuable. Or if I ask you, hey, will you watch my stroller for a second? All right, then it's even more important that you actually watch my son who's inside that stroller, right? That's kind of the argument there. That's what's happening here. If, if God is truly concerned for oxen who work in the field, how much more is he concerned for people who are working in a field? And that principle fits even within the context of Deuteronomy 25. This is not Paul just kind of allegorizing this. This is actually, uh, I think, part of the way that you should have read Deuteronomy 25 even as an Israelite. For example, just a few verses before talking about oxen, Moses writes this, Deuteronomy 24, 21, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. So you see that uh, in this immediate context of, uh, of Moses writing about oxen and so forth, there is also this concern for uh, people. So even the original context concerns uh, shows that God isn't merely concerned with bulls and cows and so forth, but this was a general principle that was intended to be flexible. It was intended to apply in various contexts. You couldn't, as an Israelite, say, I'm not going to muzzle my oxen, but I'm going to muzzle my goat or I'm going to muzzle my sheep, or whatever it might be. So Paul is going to take that flexibility and he's gonna apply it to himself and to other workers in the spiritual field of gospel ministry. Let's look at that in verses 11 through 12. He says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So Paul begins here actually with a couple of other call wahomers. See if you can, uh, you can spot them. 
right? There's a couple here, actually. The first one is, is comparing the material to the spiritual. If something's true of the material world, how much more of the spiritual world? The second one is, uh, if this is uh, true of others, if others share this rightful claim on you, how much more do I as the one who planted uh, the church? But he begins with this one where he compares the material uh, work to spiritual work. Now, he's not doing this in this weird sort of Gnostic way. His point isn't material world is bad, the spiritual world is good, or something like that. Instead, he's using this in kind of the general way that the New Testament is going to prioritize the spiritual. Uh, for example, where Paul writes to Timothy and he says, the physical training is of some value, but training in godliness is of uh, greater value, right? So it's just kind of this rhetorical point. Right? We would all recognize this rhetorical point. If I were to ask you, would you rather your child get into an Ivy League school and have a full scholarship or your child go to heaven? All right? Is anyone going to say, I'll take Ivy League, man. Harvard's pretty cool. All right? No, absolutely not. Or uh, if... Uh, if uh, I won't go with that, that example. So uh, the... Uh, the um, the point that he's making here is not some weird way to suggest that Paul is saying that the, uh, the body or the material world is bad or unimportant. He's just making this sort of rhetorical point, all right? If you would pay someone who did your yard work, how much more should you support someone who cares for the vineyard or cares for the flock or cares for the people uh, of God? And to really drive this home to the overarching point, he says Paul should, should be first in line. If others share this right, maybe a guy like Apollos or something like that, another minister of the gospel there in their context, how much more should he? Because he's the one who planted the church. He's the one who labored there for 18 months. So again, he's just saying, I have the right to be supported by you. That should be overwhelmingly clear by this point. But notice what he says next. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. I've given it up. He says, I've foregone my rights. I've relinquished them. Now, why does he say that he's relinquished them? He says, because I don't want to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Notice how that ties into the context of chapter eight. In chapter eight, he's talking about food sacrifice to idols, and he talks about the potential for, quote, stumbling blocks. Obstacles, stumbling blocks, it's the same idea. In other words, he doesn't want to make it harder for someone to believe and receive the gospel. After all, in Paul's theology, the gospel itself is already a stumbling block. 1 Corinthians 1, 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Or in 1 Peter, Jesus himself is called a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So Paul's point is the gospel is offensive. It's hard enough to receive and to believe. In fact, it's impossible of our own accord, our own will to believe and receive the gospel. It takes the grace of God to enable us. The gospel is offensive and hard enough to receive in and of itself without adding any sort of unnecessary hindrance. So what kind of hindrance does Paul mean here? What kind of hindrance would he call an obstacle? When we read this through our, our 21st century lenses, we might immediately think of something like the prosperity gospel preachers, right? Guys like Kenneth Copeland, who made the news a few years back for, for asking for donations so that he could get a jet. Why? Because Jesus would never fly coach, right? And what makes that even more crazy is that Copeland already owned a jet. 
but needed another jet because apparently Jesus would not fly coach nor would he fly in a used luxury jet or something like that. As we all remember from the, the Gospels, Jesus was very picky. He, had, uh, he was picky about his vehicular choices. He always rode the best mules and had the trendiest sandals and all that kind of stuff. Now, we read this text and you might think that sort of stupidity, that sort of cultural idea, there's a, there's a website, Preachers and Sneakers, where it shows guys preaching and they're wearing $5,000 shoes or something like that. We might read this text and think that's what Paul's talking about here, and, uh, but that's not really what he's talking about here. When, when so-called pastors are stealing the life savings of, of widows to support their lusts, it makes people all the more suspicious of all pastors. When, uh, when Casey needed a, a new car a few years back, hers had a, a, a big mechanical problem with it. Her parents offered to buy her a new car, but the car that they offered to buy her was actually an Audi SUV. And so I talked to the fellow elders here and I actually said, is that okay? Can my wife drive an Audi or will that kind of send the wrong message for the church? And I was actually prepared to reject that gift if that was what was decided. Or the same thing happened uh, when my in-laws gave me a really nice used truck for my 40th birthday. There's absolutely nothing wrong with a pastor having some nice things. We aren't commanded to be impoverished, but I realize it could be misunderstood, so I wanna be sensitive to that reality. And I think this passage has some relevance to those kinds of things, but that really isn't Paul's point. In order to really understand the particular obstacle that he's talking about, the hindrance that he's talking about, the context here, you need to know something about ancient Roman culture. In particular, you need to know about this idea uh, in the Roman culture of patronage. Patronage is a system in which a person known as a patron would kind of be the benefactor would be the, uh, the supporter of another who's known as a client. Think of the book uh, Great Expectations and how Pip is kind of provided for throughout that. The patron would provide for a client and in turn, that client was expected to kind of repay that kindness by some act of loyalty. That's patronage. I kind of do you a favor, but as a, in return, you owe me. So how is that an obstacle to the gospel? Well, here's how New Testament scholar, First Corinthians expert, Anthony Thistleton puts it. He says, the recipient is obliged not merely to reciprocate, but to outdo his benefactor in generosity. If Paul could not provide this in monetary terms, no doubt the rich patron would expect some quid pro quo in terms of status, influence, or leadership role within the church. So now you can see how this might be a problem that Paul wants to avoid. It's kind of like uh, the scene in the movie The Godfather when Vito Corleone, he, he agrees to do a favor for some guy, but then he says, someday, and that day may never come, I will call upon you to do a service for me. What's he saying? There's quid pro quo. I'm doing this thing for you, but in return, you must do this thing for me. Or another example, one of our members grew up in uh, Colombia, and one day her, uh, her dad was hired to build something for a man, so he did it, all right? That's what he did for a living, and so he built this thing. And after he did the work, the man offered her dad a tip for his work. Good job, all right? And handed him a stack of money, but her dad refused to take it. Why? Because the work that he did was built a bulletproof retaining wall, and the man was Pablo Escobar, all right? 
you don't know who that is, that's the uh, billionaire king of, uh, king of cocaine was his uh, nickname, cartel leader, all right? He didn't take the money because he assumed there's going to be some strings attached, and I don't know if you know this, you probably don't want a string attached to Pablo Escobar, all right? And so that's kind of the point here. That's what Paul is meaning. He was absolutely willing to take money from other churches. In fact, if you read the book of Philippians, he talks a lot about how the Philippians supported him in his ministry. But whenever he was in Corinth, whenever he was talking to the Corinthians, he says, I'm not receiving any money from you. I'm going to work as a tent maker among you because I don't want to put a hindrance in the way of the gospel. All right, probably because there's this cultural expectation and the potential for there not only to be suspicion around his ministry, but also some unhelpful expectations and obligations that he would have. So this is fascinating. Paul has just taken, the first 11 verses of chapter nine have all been, I have the right. I have the right to be supported. I have the right to food and drink. I have the right to take along a wife. I have all of these rights. And then he turns around and he says, but I'm not using that right. Why does he do it like this? Why does he build up the right only to talk about relinquishing it? It's to make his point even more strong, even more evident, even more of an illustration of the principle. In other words, the more strongly that he fights for the idea that he has the right, the more powerful, instructive it is for us whenever he lays it down. Let's keep going. Verses 13 through 14. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So he's already begun to kind of move away from the idea of defending his rights to talking about why he relinquishes his rights, which will then be an illustration for the Corinthians to do the same. In the rest of chapter 9, he's going to talk specifically about renouncing those rights for the sake of the gospel, but first he's going to make one more appeal. He's going to give one more line of evidence for why he has the rights that he has, and he does so by, uh, by mentioning the fact that those who work in the temple or serve at the altar share in the offerings. But that was true in uh, the Old Testament, but also true of pagan priests and temples. So it works on either level, whether it's ancient Israel or uh, pagan cultures. Now, why did those who work in temples, why do those who serve at the altar have the right to share in the offerings? Because they can't do a normal job. They're too busy doing temple stuff, right? They're slaughtering goats. They're clearing up the blood and all that kind of stuff. By the way, the same is true of pastors today. We slaughter a lot of goats, right? Jared was meeting with a, a guy the other day, and, uh, and the guy asked him, uh, whenever you plant a church, have you ever considered maybe not taking a salary? And Jared's response was, uh, no. <laughs> and uh, why not, all right? Because daddy needs a new jet? No, that's not the purpose. He's got to eat, right? Jared has to eat. He's got to provide for Claudia. He's got to provide for the kids. He's got to pay for electricity and water and a roof over their heads. And all of those things require money and he's too busy doing church stuff to go and get another full-time job that actually supports his family he's having to study for sermons he's having to study for classes he's having to pray for the church and attend staff meetings and counsel and care members uh, care for uh, members and attendees he's having to do my laundry he's going to do all those kinds of things (laughs) i'm just kidding he doesn't do my laundry carl's much better at it What's my point? My point, hopefully, is Paul's point, and that those who labor in the gospel have a right to be supported for that work. 
all right? And as one last argument in his defense, a final kind of proof, a nail in the coffin to really make this argument, in addition to the precedent of other apostles, in addition to the kind of common sense human authority of the illustration of soldiers and farmers and shepherds, in addition to the Mosaic law, in addition to the example of temple priests, now he kind of gives this closing argument, this final thing, and that is the words of Jesus himself. Way back in the beginning, I said, we read Luke 10, I said, we'll come back to that where we're here. Jesus sends out the 70 or so disciples and he tells them, among other things, he says, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. And then notice this next phrase, for the laborer deserves his wages. I think that's what Paul's referring to here. By the way, this isn't the only place where Paul is going to merge Deuteronomy 25 and this saying of Jesus that's recorded in Luke and Matthew and Mark and so forth. All right, see 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. He does the same thing. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. All right? So it does the exact same thing. Now, do these passages say something about paying staff members of a church? Yes. Is that the main point of 1 Corinthians? No. So I'm not gonna make that my main point. Again, anytime I talk about uh, you giving to the church or me receiving a salary or something like that, I know there's an opportunity for suspicion, especially in our culture. I have a vested interest, after all, there's no way for me to avoid that in talking about uh, giving because I receive a salary, all right? If this were 1 Timothy 5, I would just push through that and I push through that hesitancy and all that kind of cultural weirdness because that would be the main point of 1 Timothy 5, but it's not the main point here. So I'm just going to say members of a church absolutely have a responsibility. They have an obligation to support generously the work of that church and that workers in that church have a right to receive a portion of those offerings. That's all the point I wanna make there. If you have any questions, if you have comments, if you have concerns, feel free to chat with me or come and chat with one of our uh, lay elders who don't get paid anything. But while I'm mentioning it, I do wanna say thank you, right? It is a blessing to the congregation, or it's a blessing to the staff that you guys are gracious and generous and that we don't have to work 50 hours a week here only to go and get another full-time job or something like that and neglect our family. So thank you for that. But again, that's not the main point here. The point here that he's making is not that pastors have a right to be fed. Instead, he is making the point uh, of his own apostolic rights. Paul is building this long, this prolonged argument that he has these rights. Why is he doing that? In order to highlight the fact that he's willing to lay down those rights for the sake of the gospel. Sometimes he takes them up. With the Philippians, he was willing to receive money, but other times he lays them down. We'll talk more about that next week. For now, let me give you a few thoughts on kind of the implications and applications of today's text. The first thing that I wanna mention that's kind of an implication of this is that we need to be really careful about confusing the types of rights that Paul is talking about here with the types of rights that we tend to talk about today. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, this whole context, Paul's concerned with theological, spiritual rights. He's not concerned here with political rights, right? Those are different. As Americans, we're born and bred to love our rights. The Bill of Rights, Miranda rights, civil rights, uh, voting rights, all those kinds of things. That's not really what this passage is about. 
So we need to be really careful when we try to use this passage, we pull it out of its original context and try to apply it to things like free speech or guns or vaccines or masks or whatever it might be. Am I saying that there's absolutely nothing from this text that might apply to those conversations? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying we need to be really careful because that's not the actual context. And if we're not careful, we're gonna end up misinterpreting and misapplying it. That's the first thing I wanna mention. The second thing that I wanna mention is this text is a really good reminder of the danger of legalism, which we've talked about quite a bit. In fact, in theological quipping uh, today, we talked about one of the dangers of the Puritans is they tended towards legalism. Legalism says something could be abused, something could be misused. So let's just prohibit it altogether. Because there's abuse, let's prohibit proper use. Because you might sometimes lay down a right, you should just go ahead. Prohibit that right entirely. Notice Paul doesn't argue like that. He doesn't even argue like that when it comes to uh, receiving financial support. He allows the Philippians to help him out. He doesn't allow the Corinthians to help him out, all right? And, uh, and so he chooses singleness, but he also says marriage is good. The fact that Paul chooses to relinquish a right can't be used to argue that a right itself doesn't exist. Again, that's what legalism is going to do. It reduces, it restricts our rights or it expands our responsibilities beyond the scriptures themselves. It says, well, the Bible doesn't say this, but it should say this. We do this all the time. If the heart, uh, if the natural man's heart is like a perpetual factory of idols, like, uh, like Calvin said, then you might think of the Christian's heart as being this kind of perpetual congress, making these new laws, these unbiblical uh, sort of laws, all right? But that's not godliness. That's the irony of legalism is that it feels holy, it feels godly to create this law. Look what I'm not doing for Jesus or look at what I am doing for Jesus. That's not godliness, that's not holiness. That's a form of spiritual slavery and it displeases God, it's sin, all right? It's sin because you're suggesting that God's word is not sufficient, that it's inadequate. The last thing I wanna mention is in the opposite direction, all right? The last thing I want to mention is that this passage doesn't just support the idea of having rights, which we have to talk about, but also the principle of relinquishing our rights at times. In other words, there should be times where you're willing to forsake your spiritual freedom for the sake of love and sanctification. So let me ask you, is that the case with you? The other day I was at the gym, I saw a guy who was running on a treadmill, and while he was running on the treadmill, he was wearing Crocs, all right? With socks, which is even worse, all right? You know Crocs, they're those rubbery shoes that kind of show that you've just kind of given up in life. And, uh, and so I saw this guy, he was wearing Crocs, camouflage Crocs, I don't even know how, how I saw him. But uh, he, he's, he's wearing them and he's running. He's not walking, he's running on the treadmill. And I thought, that's a really good illustration of this passage, right? Is he free to do so? Sure, there's no rule, there's no law. Against, uh, against running in backless rubber sandal shoes on a treadmill, all right? So he's free to do it, but that doesn't mean it's wise to do it. Occasionally, wisdom demands that you relinquish a right, all right? If I can mention just a concern that I have for our congregation, we are so, we push so hard against legalism, and we should, that's right. Legalism is sin, it is evil, it is destructive. It ruins churches, it ruins lives. 
So we push really hard against legalism, and, uh, and that's because it's particularly prevalent in uh, not only American culture, but in particular, American evangelical culture. But if we're not careful in our reaction to legalism, we end up overcorrecting. We end up uh, avoiding one ditch only to run into another ditch on the other side of the road. And ironically, that other ditch is just another form of legalism. It's kind of like someone who is overweight and they're, uh, they're, they're obsessed with food and they decide, I'm going to get in shape, all right? So they get in shape and they suddenly find themselves and they're measuring every ounce. They're counting every calorie, right? What have they done? They've simply traded one vice for another, one form of obsession for another, one sin for another. They're, they aren't really free. They're just as trapped as they've always been. That's the hard thing about walking in love and not in legalism. Our minds want this quick, reductionistic, give me one word answer. Can I watch TV? Can I get a tattoo? Do I have to fast? Must I wake up early and uh, read the Bible and pray? Here's what I mean. Let me just take TV for an example. The legalist might say Christians can't watch television. Or they might say Christians can watch television, but only things like the Andy Griffith Show or Little House on the Prairie or whatever it might be. But then let's say that, li- that little legalist grows up and they read the Bible. And they say, Jesus doesn't talk about television at all. So what do they do? They, they swing the pendulum from Christians can't watch television to Christians can watch television and they kind of just stop right there. They leave it at that. There's no nuance. There's no complexity. There's no encouragement. Even as I say this, I know some of you might be thinking, I'm saying Christians shouldn't ever watch TV. That's not what I'm saying. Right? I quote from the office or Parks and Rec I think almost every single week. But I am saying that sometimes the best answer isn't just can I or can't I or must I or do I have to, but it's also should I? Should I do this thing that I'm not commanded to do or should I relinquish this right for the sake of something better? Is this activity, is this decision, is this actually contributing to the mortification of sin in me? Is it contributing to the vivification of the spirit in me? Is it contributing to greater affections for Jesus? Or is this kind of numbing me to spiritual things? And how do we answer that? Well, we'll talk about that more in the weeks to come, but let me give you this helpful grid for now. And that is love for God and love for others. That's the new law that sets you free from both legalism and selfishness. So let me ask you this. Are there places in your life where out of love for God and love for others, you're willing to relinquish your right? For example... Are you willing to relinquish the right to sleep by getting up early to read the Bible and pray? To relinquish the right to eat by occasionally fasting, relinquish the right to watch TV so that you can occasionally have life-giving conversations with your family. Relinquishing the right to eat bacon when you have your Muslim uh, coworker over for dinner. Relinquishing the right to marriage if you feel gifted in the area of singleness. Relinquishing the right to live a certain lifestyle so that you can give freely and support churches and, and, and missions and so forth. Relinquishing the right to enroll your kid in certain sports so that you can attend church and prioritize uh, life in community. Not just because you have to, but because you want to. You want to read. You want to pray. You want to study theology. You want to come to church. You want to share the gospel. The legalist just says, I have to, or I don't have to. That's the big difference between the heart of legalism and the heart of maturity. When we move beyond the can I, or can't I, or must I, instead we begin to ask, should I? Will this stir my love for Christ? 
Will this be a stumbling block for others and so forth? And we'll talk about that more in the weeks to come. For now, let's pray. Father, I confess that in a lot of ways this, uh, this text is hard. The immediate context is uh, not immediately relevant to us. Not only do most of us not face the decision of food sacrificed to idols, but none of us are apostles, and, uh, and so it becomes difficult for us to think through. And so rather than simply giving a list, like a legalist, of ways to apply this, Lord, I pray that your spirit would apply it to the unique circumstances of each of our lives, that we might be a people who are humble enough and loving enough and gracious enough to be able to, uh, to not only resist the legalism that says I have to do this, but also the legalism that says because I don't have to, therefore I'm not going to, that we might be a people who instead walk in love and, uh, and wisdom. And I pray it uh, because you're really the only one who can do this, that uh, as our justification is in your hands entirely, so is our sanctification. So I pray that you would uh, apply these things uh, by your spirit, and I ask it because you're good and you do good. So I ask in Christ's name, amen.